Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. At Beth Emanuel, we are proclaiming the vital gospel message of the coming kingdom of heaven. If you share our passion for this message, please support this teaching ministry and messianic community with your prayers and financial contributions. To learn how, click on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. The festival of Hanukkah is called the Festival of Lights, but it could also be rightly called the Festival of War. Nes Gadol Hayah Sham, a great miracle happened there. But what is the great miracle that happened there? If you were to ask the average person who grew up in the synagogue or a Jewish home, they would certainly tell you that the great miracle is the single flask of oil sufficient to feed the temple's menorah for only one day that somehow inexplicably lasted for eight days until more oil could be procured. Without diminishing the important symbolic significance of that legend, I would like you to know that's not the Neskadol Hayasham. That's not the great miracle that happened there. If that was the case, we would say Neskatan Hayasham. A small miracle happened there. It was a small miracle that the oil lasted longer than we thought it would. Hardly worthy of being called a Neskadol, and certainly not worthy of adding an eight-day festival added to the Jewish calendar. More than once, I've made it to the gas station on an empty tank of gas that, according to the gauge, should have run dry some 20 miles earlier, but you don't see me spinning dreidels or starting engines for eight days to celebrate the miracle. What's the real Neskadol Hayasham? It was a victory in war. An astonishing victory An astonishing victory in a war led by a small cadre of Jewish rebels against a much larger occupying military force. Ironically, it's the type of story that the pro-Palestinian liberation movement could really get behind if they thought about it. It would work well in their liberation narrative of an indigenous people throwing off the yoke of a colonial oppressor, because that's pretty much exactly what you had in the days of the Hanukkah Revolution. Perhaps, with a little clever sloganeering, we could get the Palestinian liberation movement excited about Hanukkah. Imagine that. I'm picturing thousands of demonstrators attending the Chabad Hanukkah menorah lighting to celebrate Neskadol, a great miracle. Now, that would be a Neskadol. But my real point is simply this. Hanukkah is a celebration of a miraculous military victory. It's a festival about war. Since October 7, I've been thinking about the ethics of warfare, both in the ancient times and on the modern battlefield. And I've been wondering, is there such a thing as an ethical humane war? And if there is, what would that look like? And I've been questioning some of my own presuppositions and ideas. So I want to take a brief look at what the Bible says about waging war. You might wonder what it was that triggered the Hanukkah rebellion in the first place. It was not conquest by a foreign power, contrary to what you might think, because the peoples of Judea were actually under the control of foreign powers already since the fall of Jerusalem. First Babylon, then Persia, then the Greeks, and in all that time, some four centuries actually, the Jewish people had never had autonomy. They were never an independent state with their own king and sovereignty, not since the fall of Jerusalem not since the fall of the temple. 
not since the exile. They were continually living under occupation and foreign control. It wasn't until Antiochus introduced his policies to eradicate Judaism and the worship of Hashem that the people rose up in revolt. Not until an idol of Zeus was standing in the temple. Not until the Torah was forbidden. Not until the authorities were killing babies and hanging them around their mother's necks as a public punishment intended to deter Jewish women from circumcising their sons. Not until the idols were being brought out to every city and the Kohanim of the villages even were being required to sacrifice to them on behalf of the people. Not until then, not until that point, did the revolution begin. So if you ask, was the Hanukkah war justified? I think as a Bible believer, I would have to answer, yes, justified. The revolutionaries correctly understood that they were in an existential battle for Jewish survival. If you follow the news at all, you must be well aware that the nation of Israel today is once more in an existential battle with a wicked and intractable enemy who has sworn their lives and existence to the extinction of the Jewish people. After the October 7 attack, you would think that a reasonable person would admit that Israel is justified in retaliating, declaring war, and executing armed conflict against such an enemy. Without a doubt, if such an attack took place on U.S. soil, we would do likewise. After 9-11, we declared war on all terrorists. We bombed the heck out of Afghanistan with three to 4,000 civilian casualties from airstrikes in the first months of the campaign. And that war went on for another 20 years. We kicked over Iraq, primarily out of frustration that there was nothing worth bombing in Afghanistan. More than a quarter million casualties, civilian casualties, ensued over the course of, the, of that war in Iraq. Why? Were we trying to carry out a genocide, targeting civilians? No. It was because we were at war, and the cost of war is civilian lives. It's a conceit of the modern era that, in a war, only military personnel and, and assets can be targeted. That's not how warfare works. That's not how warfare has ever worked. War is always awful. It's always grotesque. It's always brutal. It's always, on a fundamental human level, immoral, even if it is justified and necessary. And we didn't see the streets filled with protesters or the college campuses filled with demonstrators condemning Israel for going to war. Rather, we've seen them condemning Israel for committing the crime of genocide. I hope you realize how ridiculous it is to suggest that Israel is committing genocide. It's a complete reversal of the truth. It is Hamas, the Palestinian liberation movement that wants to commit genocide. And they say so and openly admit it. And they want to do it against one of the few nations on earth that really understands the meaning of that word from bitter experience. It's a complete lie. If Israel wanted to commit a genocide against the Palestinian people, they could do so and they could have done so. It's hard to understand how people fall for this level of blatant reversal of truth. Who is trying to exterminate who in this fight? It's Hamas and the Muslim Arab nations that have sworn to wipe the Jewish people off the map from the river to the sea. 
This last week, we had congressional hearings about the anti-Semitism openly espoused on the campuses of America's most elite schools, and the presidents of MIT, Harvard, and UPenn were all asked to condemn the to condemn these calls for genocide, the genocide of the Jewish people, on their college campuses. And all three of them, all three presidents, refused to do so. So the world should not be fooled by ridiculous lies, like the idea that Israel is committing genocide. Now, the IDF is not perfect, and I am not trying to defend Israel's 70-year policy of dealings with the Palestinians, which I believe is very flawed. But they conduct the war, the IDF conducts their wars, in such a fashion as to minimize civilian casualties to the extent possible without unduly hampering operational success and putting IDF soldiers in harm's way. Hamas claims that Israel's campaign has killed some 15,000 or more civilians, and, according to Hamas, that's mostly women and children. The media reports it as if those numbers are accurate. They most certainly are not. But even if it were, that would put the ratio of civilians to combatants killed by the IDF at 2 to 1. Two civilian lives for every combatant. Two civilian lives for every combatant? That sounds terrible. But in the Iraq War, U.S. soldiers killed three civilians for every one combatant. And in World War II, nine civilians for every one combatant. Here's the ugly truth. In war, people die. Lots of people Combatants, non-combatants, men, women, children, babies. So if you don't want a war, don't start one. But war actually is a reality. And when war happens, people die. Innocent people die. That's what war is. When I was a kid, people were saying, war is not the answer. And pacifism was often presented as the ideal. A philosophy of appeasement and pacifism rose from two points of inspiration, one being religious, the other being secular. Let's consider the secular side first. In the modern era, since the horrors and devastation of World War I, World War II, and the numerous conflicts of the Cold War, including the Vietnam War, a philosophy developed which says that war is always wrong, war is never the answer. Those who subscribe to that philosophy believe there is no justification for war under any circumstance. But the problem is that's not the philosophy of Islam, the Middle East, Asia, South America, Africa, Eastern Europe, or pretty much any place, any other place on earth than the secular West. The perspective that condemns all war as immoral is something that's fairly new to the world of secular thought and unique to Western nations. It's born out of a confluence of half-remembered Sunday school piety, shell shock from two world wars, and in no small measure from a Cold War era Marxist propaganda that took advantage of injustices, legitimate injustices, perpetrated in the Vietnam campaign and in Cambodia to raise legitimate ethical questions about U.S. foreign policy and conduct in war. Add to that the existential threat of total annihilation of the human race due to the very real likelihood of nuclear war between the Soviet Union and the United States. And in light of all of that, and under the mad proliferation of the arms race being conducted by the military-industrial complex, by the time we got to the 1970s, it seemed perfectly reasonable to say war is not the answer. 
And it's true. War is not the answer. But neither is the UN or any of the world's attempts to establish a lasting peace. Remember that World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars, but the League of Nations was not the answer. And World War II followed quickly after. War is not the answer. The answer is Mashiach. But until Mashiach comes, he tells us there will be wars and rumors of war. It's interesting to see that in the current conflict, the educated elite and educators of our most prestigious institutions, the progressive liberals and young Americans campaigning for Hamas are not exactly pacifists. They are not of the generation, like I was, that said, war, what's it worth? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. Instead, they have been so thoroughly indoctrinated by the Marxist value system that they see war and terrorism as justifiable means of fighting perceived oppression in a war of liberation. They only consider war to be immoral when waged by a Western power that they consider as an oppressor. So that's the secular perspective. From a purely religious perspective, as a disciple of Yeshua, it's also possible to come to the mistaken conclusion that conducting a war is always immoral. It's easy to arrive at this conclusion. I spent a few years in my early 20s as a pacifist, so let me explain the logic to you. Our master Yeshua says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we are told to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. And he says, do not resist an evil person. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Moreover, he is the herald and agent of a future utopian era when swords will be beaten into plowshares and the nations will not learn war again. Instead, he will settle disputes between peoples and peace will flow like a river. The idea of war, conducting a war, seems absolutely antithetical to all of these kingdom values. Under that teaching, there can be no such thing as a just war, because the execution of justice requires making a value judgment and moral judgment. And what does he say? He explicitly says, judge not, lest you be judged. And instead, we are to forgive. On this basis, many people have supposed that our master, Yeshua the Messiah, taught pacifism. At one time, before studying the Torah and understanding Torah, that was also my opinion. You can arrive at that conclusion if you ignore the master's words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah. Those words with which he prefaces the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. It's only out of the confused swamp of replacement theology that you might reach the conclusion that, contrary to the Torah, Yeshua came teaching pacifism. If you start with the foundational knowledge that Yeshua is a Jewish teacher of Torah who holds the Torah as true and sacrosanct and unchanging, then you already know that he also believes the Torah's laws about conducting warfare. The Sermon on the Mount is not his directive for national diplomacy or foreign policy. It is his directive for an individual disciple, for people, 
for how one is to walk in repentance, conduct our interpersonal relationships, and deal with our personal enemies so that our righteousness exceeds that of the religious, that we might be counted worthy of the kingdom and hasten the coming of the kingdom. It's your prerogative to forgive and to turn the other cheek, but not your government's prerogative. If the U.S. government had said, Osama bin Laden, we forgive you. Al-Qaeda, we forgive you. No hard feelings for hijacking those planes. That obviously would have been an injustice and a travesty. Suffice to say that Yeshua's directives in the Sermon on the Mount apply to individuals and are not a prescription for national foreign policy. What does the Torah say about war? It says that the people of Israel are to appoint a Kohen, a priest, to bless them for war and to pray over them as they go out to battle. He is called the Kohen anointed for war. They are to go bravely, without cowardice, and fight in the name of the Lord as the hosts of the Lord. Hashem Tzvaot, the Lord of hosts, the, the, should be translated as the, the, the Lord of armies. Nor is the utopian idealism of the future world peace of the kingdom, the messianic era, something that can be held as a standard for how to conduct international relationships before the kingdom's arrival. If you say to the lamb, go and lay down with the wolf, because in the kingdom the lamb will lay down with the wolf, the wolf will devour the lamb. On the contrary, the Bible is exceedingly clear that before the world experiences that utopian world peace of the future, God is going to send the Messiah as a warrior to make war against the nations, to devastate the peoples, to shatter the nations like pottery, to slay them with the sword of his mouth. There will be world peace because the Messiah is going to devastate militaries of the world. He is going to crush the nations so completely that they will no longer be able to make war. Do not think I come to bring peace. I do not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Psalm 2 says that the Messiah shall break them with a rod of iron. He shall shatter them like earthenware. Psalm 110 says, He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. What does it mean, therefore, he will lift up his head? It sounds similar to Psalm 24. Consider Psalm 24, which describes Hashem as a warrior returning from the field of battle. It says, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of armies, he is the King of glory, Selah. Psalm 24, 7-10 What does it mean when the Messiah lifts his head? I never understood this idiom, and I really puzzled over Psalm 24 for many years. I kept thinking that 
the heads of the gates, which were saying, lift up your heads, O gates, that the heads of the gates must refer to some architectural feature, some idiom equivalent to saying, lift the bars of the gates, or open up the gates. But then October 7 happened. A week or so later, the Israeli government released an intercepted phone conversation recorded from a stolen cell phone that a terrorist used this stolen cell phone to phone his parents back in Gaza. The conversation is all in Arabic, but they provided an English translation. The phone call is being made while the massacre is actually still going on. The terrorist calls his father in Gaza. His father answers. The terrorist says, I am talking to you from the phone of a Jew. I killed her and her husband. I killed ten with my own hands. Ten with my own bare hands. Their blood is on my hands. Let me talk to mom. He tells his mother, Mother, your son is a hero. I was the first to enter under the guidance and with the help of Allah. Both parents can be heard rejoicing and congratulating their son and praying for their son's safe return. Then he asks to speak with his father again, and he says, Father, lift up your head. Lift up your head. And he tells his father to lift up his head because his son is a hero, a warrior, returning from battle. And it's obviously the same idiom at work as in Psalm 24. The call, lift up your heads, refers not to an architectural feature of the gates of Jerusalem. Instead, it's a call from the runner, the messenger that's coming from the battlefield, the messenger who is running back to the city with the news of the battle. He's running ahead of the returning army. He's shouting to the watchmen who are waiting on the gates. They're waiting for news. He's shouting up to the watchmen on the gatehouses of Jerusalem, lift up your heads, lift up your heads, because the king of glory, heroic in battle, is coming. He's coming to enter in victory. So the victor lifts his head, as it says in Psalm 110 regarding the Messiah, when he fills the nations with corpses, therefore he will lift his head. Here's the point, I guess. God is a warrior. As it says in the song at the sea, the Lord is a man of war. He fights the enemies of his people. And in the time to come, he will fight through the agency of the Messiah who will defeat the nations. Then the Messiah will lift up his head, and those defending the gates of Jerusalem will lift up their heads, and there will be world peace. And then the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the lamb will lie down with the wolf, and the nations will not make war anymore. To summarize the biblical view on warfare in the Torah, war is presumed. War for the land is presumed. War to defend the land and the people is presumed. The reason for appointing a king is to lead the people out to war and to defend the people in war. God is depicted as a warrior. The people of Israel are referred to as the army of the Lord, the hosts of Hashem. That does not mean that the Bible glorifies war. On the contrary, War is presented as an evil, an evil, not a good. And even in the case of just wars, like the wars of David against the enemies of Israel that surrounded the nation in those days, we see that war comes with a taint that cannot be scrubbed away. David was not allowed to build the temple because he was a man of blood, too much blood on his hands. 
The prophets rebuked the kings of Israel for engaging in wars and for participating in political games with foreign powers, as if war was a chess game. It's fair to say that, based upon the Torah's ethical systems and the rebukes of the prophets, that if we go to war, knowing that war is going to bring the suffering and death of innocent civilians, of people who are helpless non-combatants, including children, then if we must go to war, it had better be a just war and it must be conducted ethically. Okay, what makes a just war? A just war does not mean that everything that happens in that war will be fair and just. By its nature, war brings unjust suffering to the innocent. That's what war does. What we mean by a just war is a justified war, or to put it another way, a war that fulfills the demands of justice. A just war happens when it would be unjust not to go to war, when it would be a breach of justice not to retaliate. And that is how you know that a war is justified. After the October 7 attacks, it would have been unjust for Israel to leave Hamas in place, to not go to war against Hamas and against every nation supporting Hamas. And even the idea of going to war against Hamas is a euphemism. Hamas is the legal, duly appointed, uh, democratically elected government of Gaza. It's a war with Gaza. Hamas is the government of Gaza. When the United States went to war with Germany, for example, in World War II, we didn't say, oh, we're only going to war with Hitler and the Nazis, but not the Germans. Instead, the Hit Hitler and the Nazis were the government of Germany. We went to war with Germany. So again, after the October 7 attacks, it would have been unjust for Israel not to go to war against Gaza. To fail to do so would be to fail to uphold the standards of justice that undergird the entire Bible. That's what a just war is. Think of how much of the Torah is dedicated to the standard of justice and upholding a standard of justice. Think of how the king is appointed over the nation to execute righteousness and justice. It's his job to protect the people and to ensure that righteousness and justice are administered. So in the Bible, a war should be waged for the sake of justice. If you're going to go to war and commit the atrocities and horrors that war brings against human beings, you had better know that you are not only justified in doing so, but that it is the just and right thing to do. So if we must fight a war, if we must if if one must fight a just war, then the Torah says it must be fought ethically. And how can we speak of conducting an ethical war when the objective of war is to kill other human beings? Well, the Torah holds the soldiers of Israel to high standards. For example, battlefield rape is absolutely and explicitly forbidden by the Torah. But if you must fight a war, if you must kill, the way to do it is to do it as quickly as possible, 
as mercifully as possible, with as little unnecessary human suffering as possible, without cruelty. Yes, there will be collateral damage, but collateral damage must be minimized. Most importantly, if you are going out to fight a war, if you are justified in waging a just war, then you must fight to win decisively. The worst thing you can do is to go to war, to do all this damage, to create all this mayhem and suffering, all this human tragedy, and then withdraw or accept ceasefire before defeating the enemy. If you do that, what have you accomplished? You have left your enemy with more reasons to hate you. You have inflicted needless human suffering. Under pressure from the UN and the international community, however, that has been Israeli foreign policy for the last 70 years. The war for independence ended as a forced ceasefire. Likewise, subsequent conflicts, Israel defeats its enemies, and then in its haste to show itself to be a noble progressive Western nation with progressive Western values, in its desire to show that the Jewish people are a peace-loving people and not the instigators of these wars, the nation forfeits the victories, returns conquered land, fails to annex conquered peoples bends to international pressure, takes control of their conquests only by half measures, allowing for terrorists like Yasser Arafat, Mahmoud Abbas, the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, to take control, actually putting these people into positions of power and supporting their regimes. That's cruelty, because you are sealing these people into a permanent state of antagonism, punishing them without defeating them. Either win the war or don't fight. Yes, there will be massive civilian casualties in any real war. That is a fact of war. But the Arab world cannot understand or respect a love for peace that exceeds the love for honor or a love for life that exceeds a love for glory and victory. So if it is a just war that you are fighting, it is important to fight with an end in view, not just to maintain a status quo of mutual hatred, tension, belligerence, and punishing military actions. Those nations that Israel has fought and fully defeated, namely Egypt and Jordan, now live at peace with Israel because they understand victory and they understand defeat. Honor and shame but they do not understand and cannot respect half-measures born out of our refined Western morality's reluctance to actually wage real war and take the victory. To the Arab world, that looks like weakness, and it invites belligerence. So here we are in the festival of Hanukkah, and Israel is at war again. And the outlook for handling the Palestinian population, and for Israel's place in the world among the nations, looks pretty hopeless. But that hopelessness, actually, for me, is a source of great hope, because that hopelessness forces me to look to the real hope, 
that is, the coming of the Messiah. May he come speedily soon and in our lifetimes. It's forcing me to yearn for the day of Mashiach. This is the festival of war. I look forward to the day when the festival of war can truly be transformed into the festival of light. When light will shine from Zion and nations will not make war again. When the Prince of Peace, the Sar Shalom, will prevail in victory and the watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem will hear the glad shout of the returning victorious King Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul. 